All right, picture this. You've got a huge test coming up in a couple days, and you have two other assignments due, plus you need to get dinner with a friend you haven't seen in a while, and on top of that, you need to start getting ahead for a test you have next week. You're trying to do all of this while keeping a workout schedule and eating healthily. Plus, find some time to sleep. Sound familiar? I bet this scenario isn't hard to picture, but rather, it's the reality we face every day as college students. I'm Anu Kumar. And I'm Madeline MacArthur. And, and this, this is Bridging the Synapse. That beginning scenario sounded a bit overwhelming, yeah? Yeah, well, when you list it out like that, of course it sounds overwhelming. But this is also just a taste of what college is like. And while you're unable to do everything on your to-do list, figuring out study techniques will take you a long way in terms of reducing your anxiety. And it turns out college is not as impossible as we think it is. And even though you can't do everything, you can help yourself be more successful with, like you said, good study techniques. But before we talk about study techniques and what skills work for us, let's talk about that little monkey in your brain called procrastination. Imagine in your brain that there's a wheel that controls your productivity. You have the rational decision maker who is usually in control of the wheel the, most of the time. This rational decision maker helps you get your homework done on time, get to bed early, and make future plans that will benefit your future self. However, sometimes the rational decision maker is not always in control of the wheel. Sometimes the instant gratification monkey decides to jump in and start driving your life. You know those times you find yourself down some rabbit hole of the internet, on Reddit or Twitter, scrolling through your feed, when all of a sudden an hour has gone by just of you scrolling? That is the work of the instant gratification monkey. When you're procrastinating, you're doing something that in that moment is beneficial to yourself, but in the long run, either does not benefit you or is possibly detrimental to your future self. Now this instant gratification monkey exists in all of us. Um, so recall back to our New Year's resolution episode when we briefly mentioned the ansley Reichland model of self-control. So the ansley Reichland model of self-control states that the closer a reward is in time, the more it's worth. So scrolling through Twitter is much more gratifying than finishing that research paper because um, because we can get to Twitter quicker than we can finish the actual research paper. Now, I want to interject and say that this concept of the wheel, the rational decision maker, and the instant gratification monkey is not by the design of myself or a new, nor Anu, but rather the blogger Tim Urban. Tim came up with this concept and did a TED Talk about it back in February of 2016. He used this concept to explain what he thinks a procrastinator's brain looks like. And as a self-proclaimed professional procrastinator, he can speak on this topic with some authority. If you want to learn more about Tim and his concept of the instant gratification monkey, check out his TED Talk or his blog titled waitbutwhy.com. This personification of procrastination is a monkey in your brain who can veer you off course is one, very entertaining, and two, very true. We're all guilty of getting distracted or slagging off when we know we should be studying for that hard class or getting up earlier. Luckily, we have some study skills that can help you combat this procrastination monkey. Right, so let's go ahead and briefly talk about uh, the 10 common ways to study as reported by John Dunlosky from Kent State University and his small cohort of other psychological scientists. So see if you can recognize any of these techniques. So summarizing, remembering keywords, self-explanation, highlighting slash underlining, making images, rereading, 
elaboration interrogation, practice test, studying ahead, and interleaved practice. So I can tell you that highlighting slash underlining and rereading are probably the most common and definitely um, a small portion of what I was using when I first got to college. So remembering uh, the techniques for remembering keywords is very similar to using flashcards. So these would be a sort of test-retest strategy that forces you to actively recall information. When you start to look at a word and read the definition and go, oh yeah, I totally knew that, you're only training yourself to recognize these words or concepts based on cues, not actively trying to coldly retrieve this information from your memory. It's almost like false self-reassurance, thinking, oh, I knew that, when in reality, you didn't know that at all. I know I'm personally guilty of this whenever I'm reviewing terms on Quizlet. Oh, same here. Um, so the next one that I want to talk about was elaborative interrogation, and that's actually one of my personal favorites, um, even though I've never actually heard it be called elaborative interrogation before. So according to the Huffington Post, this is uh, the technique where you write down questions or concepts or declarative facts about the thing that you're studying, and then you write down or explain these bullet points in great detail. So I use this method when I'm studying for a content-heavy class, which at this point in my neuroscience education is basically all of them, and uh, I might skim through my notes and, and on another sheet of paper write out all the key concepts on a piece of notebook paper. So in my cell biology class last semester, we had to understand multiple response pathways. Um, for example, the release of insulin in the presence of glucose. So we have to figure out what enzymes are involved and if this certain enzyme malfunctions, what happens to the overall pathway. So what I would do is I would look at the slide um, and the PowerPoint slide that our teacher would put up and just um, describe maybe... Uh, and I would like jot down on the piece of paper, uh, describe a normally functioning insulin pathway. And from there, I would just not use my notes and write down everything I knew about it and then double check with my notes. So sometimes I use this in conjunction with flashcards to remember the names of all the proteins. Um, or if it's got multiple working parts, it helps me remember what each of the subunits are named or what they're for. Um, this is also considered interleaved practice. So that's whenever you use more than one technique at a time. I think it's so funny that we're talking about this study technique today because in my biochemistry discussion class, we were just taught this technique. Our TA running the class showed us how to apply this technique to our class specifically because we have such content-heavy material and the processes can get so difficult. Um, and I can't believe that I've gotten this far in my college career and I'm just now learning about this technique. Right. It's, it's a really... It's a very intense technique to use because you're like ruthlessly question, like uh, testing and retesting yourself, um, but it's very effective. So the last, um, the last three study techniques that I want to go over, they seem a little self-explanatory, but um, I just want to go ahead and talk about them. The making images technique is when you attempt to create a picture in your head about what you just learned. So some people might think this is the same as trying to recall what color you've highlighted that one specific term on the study guide, but that's not the case. So this is when you uh, learn about different presidents and maybe mentally put them in a Venn diagram about where they would stand in today's political climate. So it's actually uh, you're creating this, uh, this sort of picture or mental image in your head trying to uh, quantify what you just read or what you've been trying to study in a way that's not just like a bulleted point of lists. Right, so we've talked about the techniques regarding effective studying, but what about memory itself? So how are we able to remember things such as the year 
the year the Declaration of Independence was signed, how many electrons can fit into each valence cell, or what day you have to update your registration on your car, which for me, it's like later this week. So I'm actually glad I put that in there. Um, so there are two main types of memory, long-term and short-term. And a subset of short-term memory is called working memory. And that's the information you have available for the time you're using it, but it does not get transferred into long-term memory. So if you're simply memorizing all the answers to a practice exam or study guide the night before the exam, and then take the exam the next morning, you'll more than likely throw out all of that information you crammed the night before um, as soon as you finish taking the exam. Because you're not going to be... Uh, using that uh, information immediately again. So it just goes out of your head, uh, which puts you in a really bad shape for the final. So let's talk um, about a couple more relevant models that uh, are mentioned on memory. The Atkinson-Schrifrin model is the model that we use to understand how memories are formed. So information has to go through three different processes to become a memory, encoding, consolidation, and storage. Encoding begins with the perception of the memory. So the different study skills that we talked about are different methods to encode memories. Right. And consolidation is the process of solidifying a memory, which is argued to be part of the encoding and storage process, but can also be thought of as this buffer area in between the two stages or as its own individual stage. So consolidation occurs through this process called long-term potentiation. So long-term potentiation is just when the connection between two neurons increases in strength as more signals are transmitted through them. Right, so finally we have storage, and that's just when your neurons retain the information that it's received through encoding and consolidation. So that's just the act and the process of having these memories stored. So our second sec our second memory model is called the levels of processing model. And it says the extent that something is memorized is on a continuous scale from shallow to deep, also known as perceptual to semantic. If the memory behaves strictly under this model, then that means that the structure we proposed earlier doesn't really matter, because then everything is considered a memory, but it only depends on how well you remembered it. Exactly. So you can learn more about these models and the processes of encoding, consolidation, storage, and recall from the website human-memory.net. So I wanted to briefly talk about other factors that could determine how well you study or focus. Two of the most important aspects of our day that we usually don't plan very well are eating and sleeping. I know I'm guilty of forgetting to eat dinner some nights or thinking, I don't need to go to bed early because I can function off of four hours of sleep. That is never the case. Oh, exactly. I, I definitely do the same thing too. Um, it's easy to forget the difference between simply functioning and actually thriving during the day. Oh, for sure. And according to the National Sleep Foundation, young adults who are persons ranging from 18 to 24 years old should get between seven to nine hours of sleep. I feel like if I get at least six hours of sleep, I'm already having a great day. However, it really is important us to remember to get these regular hours of sleep. Scientists even recommend to making it part of your daily to-do list. <laughs> Along with this daily to-do list, you should be eating. I'm sure we've all heard the phrase, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and this is true. It's recommended that we should only be eating about two big meals a day, and one of those big meals should be breakfast. This type of meal timing is shown to impact the body's internal clock, according to Dr. Marie-Pierre St. Ong. 
By eating most of your calories at the beginning of the day and eating less and less as the day progresses, you will develop a healthier lifestyle and an effective method to actually lose weight. Nice. Bridging the Synapse is produced, edited, and written by us, Anu Kavar and Madeline MacArthur. Production assistance is provided by John Kennedy from the Daily Beacon. Music in this episode is from Pottington Bear. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. We also release one episode a month in conjunction with the Daily Beacon. You can contact us via our email, which is bridgingthesynapse at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at SynapseBridge and on Instagram at bridgingthesynapse. For more information about this podcast and to check out what sources we use for this episode, visit us on Anchor or our Facebook page, which is Bridging the Synapse Podcast, or our medium publication, Bridging the Synapse. We hope you've learned something new today, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you.